Uh, greetings and welcome to a new episode of the Decentralized Justice Broadcast. My name is Federico Ast. I am president at the Cooperative Cleros. Um, our guest today is someone I, I greatly admire and who has been very influential in, well, in my career and in the ideas that ended up becoming Cleros. And this is Ellen Landemore. How are you, Ellen? I'm very happy that you are with us today. Thanks, Federico. I'm great. Um, happy to be here. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm with you from, from the US today, actually. So it's a very interesting time to be back in the US. Yeah, indeed. Well, we're going to discuss this. Uh, let me just give um, our audience um, a bit of background about you. So Hélène Landemore is a professor of political science at Yale University, and she has a, a PhD from Harvard. Her research and teaching interests include democratic theory, political epistemology, theories of justice, philosophy of social sciences, constitutional processes, and workplace democracy. She advised the parliaments of Finland and France on inclusive decision-making and is currently serving as expert consultant for the French government at the Convention Citoyenne, a policy-making experimentation with randomly selected citizens. And finally, she also had uh, some experience as author and editor. Uh, she edited the book Collective Wisdom, Principles and Mechanisms in 2012, which was, uh, in my case, very eye-opening about the potential uses of collective intelligence into, into politics, um, which ended up becoming what Cleros is today. Then she authored Democratic Reason, Politics, Collective Intelligence, and the Rule of the Many in 2017. And finally, uh, her recent book, Open Democracy, Reinventing Popular Rule for the 21st Century, which was published in, in 2020. So, Ellen, we always start uh, our podcast with like learning a bit about the background of, of the guests. So tell us a bit about your, your background. How, how did you decide to study philosophy and why focus on, on political philosophy and a bit about what took you to, to the point that you, where you are today? Right. Well, I guess, uh, you know, in the French system, when you um, uh, enter the last year of high school, you, you have mandatory philosophy, no matter what... Uh, what field you are otherwise. So I was, I was in a more like mathematical and scientific, uh, uh, you know, uh, path at the time, but I just fell in love completely with philosophy. I, I remember reading Descartes, uh, Kant, Marx, and I just, I was just blown away that that's the thing I loved the most. And so I decided to turn to, um, uh, courses, uh, that, uh, you know, took me on a path to the economic career, and then uh, I wrote a, a master dissertation on uh, on David Hume. The question, because the, the main question I was interested in philosophically, I would say, was the question of uh, how do I make the right choice? You know, in life in general, um, moral decision making in particular, and so I, I was looking to these various traditions, utilitarianism. Uh, Uh, you know, Kantianism, uh, virtue ethics, and and I and I and I must say, after a while, I, I as as fascinating as some of the answers were, I, I wasn't completely convinced. So I found the need to turn to the social sciences, and at that point, I had enrolled at Sciences Po in a economics and finance sort of courses, and and I, I was completely again blown away by uh, what was called, you know, the time rational choice theory. And even though I quickly, you know, found out the limitations of that paradigm, I, I also thought it was incredibly rigorous and, and interesting in modeling um, the way people make choices. And so that got me into, uh, you know, the project of writing a dissertation on the philosophy of economics, mostly as a criticism of, of the assumptions underlying, uh, you know, neoclassical economics. And 
And so I went to, to Harvard for the PhD, uh, but then very quickly, instead of, of writing that sort of topic, I, I turned to democratic theory because that, that's where all my interests sort of converged. You know, it was about collective choice, collective decision making, the, the moral dimension, as well as the epistemological dimension of those choices and, and the assumptions we had to make about human beings, the rationality or lack thereof. Um, so it just, it just, I just found my, my niche, if you want, uh, in that space. So t tell me a, a bit, uh, Ellen, about um, what is um, so collective intelligence and, and why this is relevant for, for politics in, in general. Um, so collective intelligence, it's a, it's a phenomenon that's, um, you know, um, emergent, meaning it's, uh, it's more than the, the sum of the, of the individual intelligences of the, of the agents. Um, it's something that comes in part from the, the collective properties of the group. And, and one collective property that, that turns out is, is really important is how diverse, um, uh, the group is, how, how many different types of approaches and perspectives and, and information um, uh, can be found in the group. So, and, and it turns out that according to some theories, including uh, those by, uh, uh, you know, Lu Hong and, and Scott Page that I, that I used a lot in my previous work, you are often better off if you want a collectively smart group with under certain conditions that are quite plausible with uh, a group that's perhaps not as smart Uh, when you take individuals, uh, you know, uh, uh, individuals um, average, uh, if, if there's a way to measure their individual competence, as a group that's actually a little less, um, that contains uh, individuals that are a little less smart, but actually that are a lot more diverse as a group. So what I often use as a metaphor to summarize this, although it's very crude and very inaccurate in some ways, is that you're often better off with a group of ordinary citizens that are chosen at random because then you end up with a really diverse group than with a bunch of Einsteins who've all been, got, all been to, to the same school, trained the same way and, and have a very homogeneous way of thinking about problems. Because what will happen is that they, they might get stuck, on, get stuck on some local optima because they, they have kind of blind spots that don't allow them to, to search the entire epistemic landscape, so to speak. Um, so that's, that's the idea, right? That collective intelligence is a function of a number of factors. Only one of them is the individual competence of the members. Um, and, and sometimes it turns out that the, the other factors, how diverse the group is, is much more important. Um, speak a bit. I, I, I was reading your book um, so uh, um, this week, and, uh, and I was um, impressed by, by one thing that you wrote about how the founding fathers of the U.S. Um, designed the mechanism for, for American Republic. Um, and there were like two two visions back then. I think one vision was, yeah, we should create representative democracy based on, on enlightened elites, if you, if you want, that will make better decisions. But um, there was another uh, vision of how to structure the, the republic, which was, which was more based on, on regular, ordinary people taking from, yeah, from the American citizens. Um, can, you, can you discuss a bit about how this, um, I, I guess, uh, uh, tension worked back then in the early days of the American Republic and, and how that was resolved back then? Yeah, so, so it's basically the, the conflict between the Federalists 
and the anti-federalists. So the federalists had this vision of a natural aristocracy who should be in charge of the country and, and should filter the judgment of ordinary citizens through the enlightened minds of people of, of uh, you know, of socioeconomic means and virtue. And, and that, that that's a very sort of a, um, elitist vision of what uh, leadership and representation are about, right? And the idea was that, well, we'll, we'll have large uh, constituencies and naturally, if we use elections, which is by itself a, a somewhat uh, oligarchic principle, people will, you know, bring to power the cream of the cream, like the, the notables, the people with social visibility, with resources, with, um, with uh, respectability, and then we will end up with uh, the right kinds of uh, representatives. And that will ensure good governance and the respect, uh, the respect of rights, and, and that's a very safe bet for the nation. But on the other side, you had people who were very worried about the elit elitist, um, very explicitly actually, the very explicit elitist dimension of this um, vision. And what they wanted is uh, not a, a um, representation as a, as a filter for ordinary people's judgment, but instead a representation as a mirror image. They wanted to have a Congress that looked like the people, that felt like them, that thought like them. And in order to get that, they thought that we didn't want to send to power a natural aristocracy. We wanted to send instead, you know, the middle class, something like that. So they, it's not that they had, you know, uh, the anti-federalists imagined anything close to what the Athenians had, which is a, you know, a random sample, uh, you know, serving on popular juries or on, on the Council of 500 to set the agenda for the for the polity, they, they, I don't think that model was on their minds at all, actually. But they at least tried to imagine something that was a little bit closer to a, a mini portrait of the nation, right? They wanted to have uh, farmers and uh, and uh, artisans and and like uh, you know the the working class of the time, in a way, in power. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that in the battle of ideas that took place at the time, they 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 lost uh, in part because their arguments were not as coherent and, and well put and and uh, marketed as those of uh, the federalists. And I think in part because the vision of me portrait of the nation, the vision of a representation as a as a portrait rather than a filter, still was uh, accompanied with a commitment to elections as the natural selection mechanism to send people to power. And that's a mismatch. There's a mismatch between the selection mechanism they favored, like everyone else, because it's, it's, a, it's a legacy of social contract. You know, like you need a, you don't have democratic legitimacy without consent, so therefore elections are are the natural mechanism to to select representatives. And there was a mismatch between the selection mechanism they were committed to, like everyone else at the time, and the goal of getting a a, a mirror image of the nation. If they had been fully coherent. Uh, they probably should have turned to random selection lotteries as a way to get the the mirror image they they wanted, but instead because they couldn't um, give up on elections as a selection mechanism to, to to choose representatives, they thought of another solution which was to reduce the size of constituencies. So they wanted smaller constituencies because uh, in a smaller group, then you know 
regular folks have more chances to be elected, right? It's um, mm -hmm. it's uh, you need less uh, visibility or social uh, charisma or connections or money than than in a large constituency when you need to build a reputation uh, at the large scale. So so that's why I think in part and not just for that reason, but I think conceptually, I think it's probably part of the reason why they 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 lost. They also made a, a huge marketing failure because they let the the federalists. Um, take the positive name and, and they were called by contrast, the anti-federalists. So it sounded mm. like, like, uh, like they were the bad guys. And so it's, it's just, you know, the, the randomness sometimes of, of historical events is quite fascinating. You, you could imagine an alternate universe in which they had one. And then the face of America today would be, or, or the face of the United States today would be very different. And therefore the face of the world as well, probably. Yeah. I think it's really interesting because, also because of the date when we are recording this. Now it's January 7, 2021, and just one day after the after the storming of the U.S. Congress by well, a group of, I know uh, how to yeah. call them. But um, the, 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 the thing is that maybe the, the, um, this uh, scheme that was developed by the Federalists in the 18th century, one could uh, argue that it basically worked for like at least two centuries, right? Uh, it created a stable republic that uh, prospered and endured for, 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 yeah, lots of time. But now, since, I guess, um, some years, uh, maybe some decades, but maybe uh, more visible now, uh, especially because of what happened yesterday and what had been happening in previous years, like, it seems that this idea of democracy is in crisis. Right, um, it's not working as it used to be. Um, yeah. Can you speak a bit about that? Are, are we living in an age of democratic crisis? Are we on the edge of a democratic crisis? I think we've been in the midst of a democracy crisis for quite some time now. I think that already, I, I would say, at least since two thousand eight, you know, the the financial crisis really revealed the extent of the damage uh, that had been done to, um, you know, uh, the democratic. Uh, ethos and, 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 and beliefs and, and the fact that, you know, the, the system couldn't really uh, save ordinary citizens but focused on, on, on saving large banks and, uh, you know, it, it just, the, the hyper-capitalism that, that this system had allowed to, to, to take over and I think that was already uh, the beginning of the end. And then 2016, I think, was another turning point where you saw the extreme polarization culminate in, in the election of a of, you know, populist slash authoritarian personality like Trump. And now we're at the end of this cycle where, to me, it, it's, it's the end of an era. I mean, I think the, 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 the image of American democracy in the world is, is um, it's tarnished, I'm not going to say forever, but like for, 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 for a long time until it recovers from it, either because it, it decides to, to, to engage in serious institutional reform or, or, you know, or, or through some other solution. But, uh, so yes, we are in, in the midst of a, of a massive crisis. And, uh, and I think that maybe one of the conclusions is that we, never were in a, in a real, full, authentic democracy to begin with. And that's why we're having so much prob problems, so many problems. Uh, at least that's my reading, right? That um, in part it's because the system tried to keep out the masses so much, tried to 
prevents majorities from from getting their way that they they found a, a sort of populist outlet to to express their frustrations and so we, we always blame minorities but i also think that the the, the american system is profoundly anti majoritarian and and it has created a it benefits mostly very wealthy powerful minorities who know how to navigate this extremely complicated and and uh layered system and uh and i think we're paying the price now because external factors like globalization like uh you know uh, the digital revolution all these things have amplified the threats on the system and um and the system is is not equipped to to really protect majorities and, and masses and and and, in, and instead it's sort of a uh amplifies inequalities uh, or at least doesn't doesn't solve them so i think that that's to me um the lesson to derive from all of this is that it, it's high time from for, for some kind of fundamental change and not just yet another election every time you know uh somebody else comes in, comes in power it's supposed to be the chance to fix things and then nothing happens so i don't see biden as a solution at all i think it's, you know, it's just um, another round of of, uh, of the same, perhaps less worse than, than Trump, but it's, it's not going to solve anything. But for me, at least in the U.S., in case of all the problems that other democracies face, there should probably be some kind of uh, constitutional moment where we revisit the foundations of the American social contract, perhaps including by revisiting this idea of representation, right? And, and perhaps... Uh, introducing some elements of uh, mirror image uh, of the mirror image ideal that the anti-fairists wanted and never got. Can you expand a bit on that? Like, what type of um, ideas from the the anti-federalist vision of, of democracy could we think of, um, yeah, implementing, and, and how this leads to, to this concept of open democracy? Right, so so actually, that, that's not so much from the inference that I borrowed the question. It's more from um, from preferably from the Greeks. I think they they were, uh, you know, they had a very problematic exclusionary, you know, uh, democracy based on the slave economy and the exclusion of, of women and, and metics and all that. But at least when it came to the distribution of power within a given demos, they were profoundly egalitarian in a way that we can only dream of at the time. Um, uh, they decided that political offices would be distributed on the basis of one person, one citizen, one free man, one lottery ticket. Pretty much that, that was it, right? You didn't need any type of test taking or competence proving or, or anything to access power. It just had to be, uh, chosen by lot and also to be willing, actually. So they, there was an element of self-selection in, in the process, but most people were interested in doing it. Uh, because it was an honor, it was your duty, and it was paid. So a lot of the working class then, you know, was like, well, it's, it's a couple of uh, obols a day, and I'll, I'll, I'll take that, I'll go, I'll do my mm -hmm. job, I'll sit on a jury, I'll, I'll, I'll stay for one year on the Council of 500 and work on putting proposals together for the People's Assembly. I'll show up at the People's Assembly early in the morning. Uh, so so that's the idea that I, that I uh, borrow most actually so it is connected to this idea of a mirror image but the selection mechanism is no longer elections it's actually straightforward uh sortition right the, the you know uh random selection uh 
because that's the only method that truly distributes power equally amongst all without discrimination on the base of anything else but but your identity as a citizen um and uh and because it does get you a mirror image of the people statistically if the sample is large enough mm-hmm. so that that's what got me to this idea of a uh, open democracy uh together with the famous you know i i mean at this point relatively famous icelandic uh, example you know that i describe in the book uh it's this experiment in constitution rewriting that they conducted in 2010 where they gathered a sample of 950 randomly selected citizens to write down the principles and, and values embedded in their social contract and then they let a group of 25 citizens uh, who were elected but from among a pool of people from whom um, official politicians had been excluded who were in char- and those 25 were in charge of writing the new constitutional proposal uh then this the this 25 chose to crowdsource the the draft to the crowd on the internet um and ultimately the the, the proposal was approved by two thirds of the voting population in a in a 2012 referendum and so you know this historical um precedent of ancient Greece of classical Athens and the contemporary example of Iceland gave me a vision for something that would be a lot more democratic than our current systems that are obsessed with election and party politics and a system in which everything would be centered around the ordinary citizen right that it wouldn't be about elites fighting it out it wouldn't be about uh, um harnessing the ambitious uh, and and uh you know trying to keep them accountable by elections mm-hmm. it would be really genuinely about placing citizens at the center of the system uh through random sortition because we can't really have a direct democracy where all of us at all times make all the decisions and then you rotate people would rotate in and out of power over over time uh so that you know in the ideal everyone you know if you do this at all levels of the polity and and very regularly you you end up having most of the population rotating rotating in and out of of power and exercising their their duties as citizens in a very uh profound way much more profound than the act of voting every four years which is a very limited way of exercising your sovereignty and and your uh your citizen rights good i'm um, i'm um, tell me a bit so you started um in this Iceland experiment uh what did, what year was this in Iceland I don't remember so the, the the whole process started after 2008 when they when they went through this huge crisis you know the financial and economic crisis that everyone felt but that their very tiny nation sort of felt in a unified way because they, they burned seven times their GDP at that times and and the, the whole system collapsed including the political system so politicians were kicked out of power after a mini revolution very bloodless one in their case but still they only threw yogurt and bananas at parliament and sort of things uh And then the new the new people in power decided that they wanted to start this uh, constitutional process and it started with a national forum of as I said 950 randomly selected citizens um in 2010 that were convened to lay the foundations for for this new social contract. So and then it ended uh not so well actually in 2013 when even though the the, the referendum from the year before had been positive uh the parliament refused to vote this uh constitution into law 
So it's a, it's a kind of a beautiful mm. failure, if you want. But for my purpose, uh, a vision for what could be possible, even if it didn't really work in the Icelandic case. Well, but 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 you you had an, a, another chance in in France, um, you know the this, the work of the Convention Citoyenne. Uh, can you uh, tell a bit the audience about that? Ah yes, so so actually I was uh, almost done with my book Open Democracy, and then this experiment in France happened. So I had to like delay the the publication to de to to integrate. Uh, the lessons I could derive in time from that experience. And that, that's been a fascinating thing to observe. So, so, so just for, for your um, audience, let me give a bit of context. So in November um, 2018, uh, you, you may have uh, heard of the, this movement called the Yellow Vest Movements. Mm -hmm. And some people compare it to the Tea Party in the US, and, and there, is, there are some elements of that, but I think it's a... It's a more uh, wide-ranging group of people. There are people from the left, from the right, from you know, from all kinds of uh, of social groups. So it's it's not exactly like the Tea Party at all, I think. Um, but they they ha they share, if you want, with the Tea Party, I guess, a, um, a rejection of a, of a system seen as corrupt and elitist and and closed off to their claims and demands and needs and. And uh, and and there are people they, they they started to wear yellow vests because these are the the vests that people carry uh, keeping their cars when they when they have to like you know uh, when they're in danger and and they symbolically by wearing those vests wanted to be seen they wanted to be seen in a system that doesn't make any room for them doesn't see them uh, which is which is understandable because precisely the selection mechanism never sends to power people that have a, a yellow a yellow vest type of economic profile right they the people in power are usually urban uh, educated uh, Uh, relatively wealthy, uh, at least in France, it's uh, we have a uh, more diversity than, than in the U.S. But but at any rate, it's not you know the the, the single mother uh, on welfare who lived in a rural area, uh, who and, and who resented the tax on, on fuel that the government uh, uh, created in 2018, which sort of ignited the whole the whole uh, yellow vest movement. And so the yellow vest initially ga gathered uh, on traffic circles in the countryside, but then very quickly they went on to demonstrate on the Champs-Élysées and they broke things and, they, and, and it threatened the government to, to its core. And I, I remember being quite shocked by the violence and the anger and I thought, wow, this is, this is some, something like I've, I've never seen before. And, and not unlike the storming of the, of the capital, actually, in terms of like, the, the degree of, uh, of anger and violence. And, uh, and so in reply, what, what's interesting is that uh, President Macron actually tried something that had not been really tried before, and I, I don't think it had been tried in many places either. He, he organized a so-called Great National Debate. It was a two-month affair from uh, February to end of March 2020. Uh, and during this time, you had like uh, city hall meetings, you had uh, a, a government website that was open to uh, feedback from from. You had uh, grievance books written all over France. You had 10,000 self-organized meetings in various uh, localities. And you also had um, uh, 21 so-called regional assemblies, which were randomly selected assemblies of roughly 100 people each in each of the 13 regions of France in, in, uh, in our five ultramarine territories. And, uh, and in addition, there were a couple more for, for example, um, just the youth. So people between uh, 
I think, uh, 16 and 30 or 16 and 25. I don't exactly remember. So the idea was to, to create a moment for, uh, both catharsis, you know, like just let people express their frustration and constructive, constructive deliberation, potentially constructive problem solving. So in the end, because it was very quickly improvised and, not carefully thought through and, and, and a reaction to an emergency situation rather than anything else. Uh, this great national debate was a lot, was criticized a lot in part because in fact, the people who took part in it were, were not your typical yellow vests. They were mm. uh, rather like uh, the, the opposite to the democracy profile. But at, at least one thing that came out of this is that um, uh, the 12 of the, of the regional assemblies converged on one recommendation, which was, uh, environmental issues are really important to people, including yellow vests, actually. Um, but they need to be dealt with in a socially just way, and this requires new modes of governance. So the government read that, and they thought, okay, well, if that's what people want, we're going to give them a convention, a citizens' convention for climate, which will be tasked with coming up with socially fair ways to deal with climate change, basically. And so they gathered uh, a sample of 150 French citizens from ultramarine territory, from all over the place, from, you know, all our regions. Um, and they put them in this gorgeous, uh, brutalist uh, palace called the Yena Palace um, in the center of Paris. And they paid them 80, 80 euros a day to meet for seven weekends uh, over the course of ultimately nine months because, you know, we had a lot of social unrest. So this was delayed a lot. Um, and then the pandemic uh, hit, and then mm. this is you know, things even more because then, then you know everything had to take place on Zoom, and and they did an amazing job. They they came up with 149 proposals, a very coherent plan about how to reduce carbon emissions by sorry green gas emissions by 40 percent of the 1990s levels by 2030, which was the the mission uh, statement, uh, uh, the, the mission that the government gave them. And now we're still in the process of seeing whether their proposals are going to be turned into law because, of course, the, even though Macron had promised that all of their proposals would be put without filter to direct regulation or, or direct referendum or, or a parliamentary debate, in fact, of course, a number of filters have been operating and so it's, it's, it's complicated. But so right now what, what it looks like is that um, it, it looks as if uh, some kind of um, uh, law project is going to come out of it sometime in the spring. Some aspects of it will dilute the initial uh, proposals by the citizens, but it's still quite quite a victory if something comes out of it, I think. Mm -hmm. And there should even be a referendum so uh, on one of the more symbolic uh, recommendations of the convention, which is to create... Um, which is to amend the first article of the French constitution to to reflect a commitment of the of the republic to the environment, something mm. like that. Um, so who knows? It should take place in the fall 2021, I guess, if it's really good place. So that, that's the story of the convention and, and how it happened. And, and, and to me, it's an effort to open up the the you know the legislative process and the decision making process, the policy making process in general, to a mini portrait of. Uh, the larger public. Um, so that's an effort to to 
implement some of, of the what I call the, the, the principles of open democracy. Um, it's criticized left and right, and you know there are people who see it as a threat to representative democracy, others who see it as a supplement to representative democracy. My own take is that it's actually a new kind of representative democracy in the making, that we're we are talking about representatives that are not uh, elected, but uh, um, randomly selected, and so we need a new name for them, and I call them lotocratic representatives. Uh, to me, they are more democratic than elected ones because uh, it's, you know the, the access to these assemblies is a lot more inclusive and egalitarian. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, there's a real question of what's the legitimacies of the, these new democratic representatives because we don't have mm, uh, much practice or, or of you know uh, for what they can do. We, we, we certainly we can find inspiration in the Greek example, but we are very diff- we, we, are, we are in very different societies today, so it's not like you can do a direct uh, transplant. Uh, and so it's it's a very exciting. So at the same time that we're in, in the midst of this horrible democratic crisis, I also think that. We are also at a time of, of incredible democratic effervescence and um, experimentation. So that gives me hope, if you want. You know, I, I have been following this very closely. Um, I think that what I saw as like spectacular is the how much attention Macron gave this because uh, he went personally to the convention more than once. I think he tweeted about that. Like, um, I think that he, he like the, the French government seems to be very interested in the, this type of, of innovation, uh, and um, I'm curious to know um, a bit more about how you selected the participants uh, in order to make them representative of um, the, yeah, the wider uh, public. Yeah. So yes, you're right that part of the success is actually due to the fact that uh, Macron invested himself personally in all this and and ensured that you know the media had to pay close attention and talked about it a lot and and so I think that that's what's so new and innovative about the French convention is that it's it's really a, a something that had a legitimacy imparted to it from the top. Whereas often these, these uh, you know, deliberate polls or mini publics that, that we hear about are, are really academic exercises or, or sort of technocratic exercises running run the, run the shadow, right? That we don't really hear about them. They're not meant to have much of an impact. But in the French case, uh, basically Macron said, look, I'm giving you a free reign to come up with solutions to fight climate change in a way that um, the government hasn't been able to. And I commit to submitting your proposals without filter, as I said, to direct regulation, referendum, or parliamentary debate. So he actually met with the uh, convention members three times, met with them in January um, 2020 at their invitation, actually. I remember, I think it was uh, Yolande, one of the participant members, who tweeted, or I think she tweeted on on Twitter, like uh, an invitation to the president, and then that was taken up, and he showed up in January. Uh, And it was a really... Um, well-covered affair it was on, 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 on media and it started to give the, the, the a, lot of, uh, a lot of attention from the rest of the public. Then he met them again six months later when they delivered the, the, the results. He, he went there uh, in June and welcomed them in the Elysium Garden, actually, in a socially distanced way, because of course at the time the, the pandemic was in the room. And he said, that's when he said, okay, here are my three vetoes. There, are, there were three things he didn't want to to implement, so this was not really in line with the no-filter promise, but anyway, um, and those had to do with the um, uh, reduction of the speed limit on highways to uh, 
110 kilometers an hour uh, with a sort of tax on capital uh, gains or something like that. So he had three three vetoes, but then he again recommitted to um, serious implementation of the of the measures, and people were rather happy with this promise at the time. And then he met them again uh, in December after there were some you know, uh, disgruntled uh, convention members who expressed their disappointment at, at their proposals being looted in parliament. And so, so really, it's, 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 the, the fact is that this convention has become um, a political actor of some weight in the French uh, political landscape, even as it's, it's still, it's, it's officially lacking a ju- judicial status, right? It doesn't, it's, it's there just because Macron wants, wants it to be there, but... Um, so there, there are some issues with its legitimacy because it's it's not a, a legal object. Mm-hmm. Um, so so anyway so uh, and and your last question was I'm sorry I lost, uh, I lost my kind of yeah I, 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 just to, to learn more about the yeah the, the, the how the, the sign was made of the experiment to to draw the people randomly and ah, make sure that right. they represent the public. Uh, so they they asked uh, you know uh, polling institutes to generate the, the the sample and what they did was to generate um, I think it was something like 300,000 uh, randomly generated phone numbers and then they contacted a, f- a fraction of those phone, phone numbers until they got uh, uh, you know enough people of, of a certain number of categories so among the categories that they stratified on were uh, obviously gender education level uh region of origin um the rural versus urban uh, divide uh, a number of, of of uh you know salient categories like that were were used to to make the sample one thing they didn't use which was seen as a mistake uh exposed if you want is that they didn't poll based on opinions about climate change for example they didn't ask do you think climate change is real, for example? Uh, so, so it's possible, and it's actually, we, we don't really know, actually, it's hard to measure, but it, it's uh, actually, well, so I, it, I think it's very likely that um, the sample was much less, I mean, or at least somewhat less um, climato-skeptic than the rest of the French population, which which I think is a problem. But, you know, um, again, it's, uh, you know, there's no perfect... Uh, experiment so the, the the what's interesting is that they learned from this mistake because now uh there is a new sample that has been drawn to accompany the vaccination policy in france so this time they went for a small jury of 20 uh, of 35 citizens and they said so the the, the, draw, the the drawing of the sample has been done now so i think they are set to meet uh, very soon and they're going to help the government uh you know deal with the reactions to the vaccination process and perhaps I'm not sure they're going to help with the, you know, decisions about uh, uh, ethical priorities, but they could. Uh, So, so so it's continuing. The experimental phase is continuing. And what they learn, when I say they learn from their mistake is that this time they, when they sampled this, uh, when they created this uh, sample, they also stratified on the basis of the answer to the question, uh, do you plan on being vaccinated or not? Because they wanted to have a sample that represents the uh, the fact that 60% of French people are are very skeptical about the vaccine. Hmm. So I think that, that 
that shows that there's a, a learning curve and that uh, we're making some progress in, in, in the way we, we approach uh, the selection of these bodies. Good. Well, so we are in a situation where we have uh, democracies um, that seem to be, I would know, use the word failing, but facing challenges because of a number of uh, different situations that you mentioned, uh, globalization, technology, etc. Um, and we also have these little experiments um, done with sortition and other mechanism designs, if you if you want to use a game theory uh, concept, um, in order to, to, to think about how the democracies could be um, transformed for, for the next, um, yeah, the, the next era of, of humankind. So how do you imagine these new experiments being brought to life and being uh, implemented in real life and transforming democracies? And what do you see as, as challenges? Well, I think we need to start scaling up. So, you know, we've had 20 years of experiments at the city level, regional levels, and, and now finally we're seeing some experiments like, like in France at the national, at the national level. Uh, but then, you know, when, when you ask people to solve climate change at, at the level of a nation that's only responsible for 1% of green gas emissions, I mean, it, it only makes so much sense, right? So the idea would be to scale that up to the global level, have a, some kind of climate change, uh, Citizens' Assembly for Climate at the global level, because there you have all these like distributive uh, justice issues, right? Um, uh, the, the, the global South is really not responsible for much of the of the problem, and yet uh, uh, we're asking them to do a lot, and and um, and, and they're going to pay most of the most of the costs. And meanwhile, the, the global North is uh, continuing to pollute uh, at uh, full speed. And so, so how do we? Can we have a conversation about the multiple dimensions, including ethical, including political, including scientific, um, of this uh, large-scale problem at the proper level where it can be solved, which is at the global level? And and of course, that's that's. I mean, this you have to be wildly utopian to think that something like that could succeed, of course. And but um, uh, you know, you, you you have to try somewhere. The problems are so huge that uh, it, it, we have to try something. Um, the other problem I see, uh, if we are just talking about continuing uh, implementing such uh, assemblies at the level somewhat accepted, the regional or, or the city level or the or the national level, is how do you articulate the legitimacy and and the work more generally of these assemblies with that of um, already existing elected assemblies. Because in the French case, you saw a lot of friction, right? Uh, we've been seeing a lot of friction between these convention members and the elected officials in parliament. So that there's a fraction of the, of the parliament which is very conservative and sort of right-wing and partly historic ignorance who, who, who think that uh, lottery-based representation is profoundly un undemocratic, right? So uh, I think this is completely wrong. But what I think they mean is that it's illegitimate. And that's not entirely false. I think we have to really think hard about ways to make those assemblies more legitimate. And by more legitimate, I mean rooted in some kind of majoritarian consent. Um, we need to, to get populations behind those bodies. Right? Um, and before we can do that, they need to know about them, which now is happening now in France. I mean, people are really very much aware of the, of the, of the, the French Convention. 
but may not be happening in other countries. I think in the US, it's terra incognita for most people, right? Um, and then we have to find a way to institutionalize those bodies instead of keeping them as like one-off experiments with very little, uh, uh, very few roots in the existing system. So I think it will have to mean we go, we have to go through a, a constitutional moment where they, where they get uh, uh, listed in the constitution as a, a new kind of, of representative chamber or representative institution. It's working a little bit in France on that front as well, because our third legislative chamber, which has been a very inefficient uh, uh, body, uh, it's basically a, a place where representatives of uh, so-called uh, organized civil society meet to produce reports and recommendations that are absolutely never read and are completely mm. pointless. Uh, and, and the fact is that I, I had never heard of the CESE until, you know, I was asked to sort of like uh, look into their experiments and give them advice. And, and now, because they were so pointless that the government had said, we're just going to dissolve the institution and, and replace it with uh, something else. They, in order to save their, their institutional existence, they offered to become the new chamber of participation. Right? They, they would remain a place where uh, that's run by and, and mostly for the um, civil organized societies, so basically representative of NGOs, uh, unions, and things like that, professional organizations. But they would try to augment the, the deliberations with the wisdom of specifically convened randomly selected uh, citizens' assemblies. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's in one way an effort to institutionalize citizen participation. In another way, it's, it could be uh, a way to kill it because, uh, you know, it could be just a gadget that there's oh. some kind of like veneer of participation they do to, to keep themselves in power. So I, I, I see that as a challenge. I see, I see that as, if you want, I think that it's very difficult to, to reform systems when the existing power players uh, instrumentalize participation to stay in power, basically. And, and for that, I don't really have a, a good solution. Mm. I'm a theoretician. I, I really think it's, it's, it's really about the, the, the politics of all this and how do you both convince people that it's the right thing to do and, and show them that it's in their interests. Um, but we're, we're moving towards the end of, of, of this um, recording. So I, I have um, a question. Uh, so, um, you know, um, nobody saw this COVID um, situation coming like <laughs> one year and a half ago. Um, so, and, you know, this has changed so many things uh, in so little time. For example, I, I am from Argentina and for the first time the, our Congress um, went uh, to online sessions and that was like unthinkable um, uh, some, like one year and a half ago. Uh, and for this to happen, they would have discussed this for like 10 years and then make a pilot. And so since we had COVID, well, they did it in like two weeks. <laughs> uh, so I guess yeah. how how, yeah. how this um, emergency situation is affecting or also implementing these new technologies and new, um, new designs of, of democracies? And, and how do you see this in the end? How, how do you imagine democracy in 20 years? 
Um, so I actually think that, you know, if, if we want to look at the upside of all this, uh, you know, terrible um, series of events, I actually think it's going to speed up the process because, for example, we also thought it was unthinkable for, uh, you know, a parliament to, to, to meet just online, that everything would be hijacked, that people wouldn't be able to work properly and everything. But, that's also what, what's been done in France, of course, and and even the French Convention on for Climate, which you know had only had about five sessions to get to know each other. I mean, it, it was pretty efficient, actually. I think after the third one, they really were tight and you know very committed. And but so after five sessions, they had to move online and 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 do everything online. And apparently, it's doable. And and uh, and here I want to credit the the organizers. You know, they they were. Um, these agencies, Mission Publique and Res Publica, who did a fantastic job of like, you know, turning things around overnight. And, and uh, they, they, they had an online platform that allowed people to communicate. Uh, they organized all kinds of webinars. They, they, uh, people were handed, handed uh, you know, uh, uh, iPads or not iPads, but, uh, uh, well, tablets to be able to communicate. And, and so it kind of worked. And, and so, if that's the case, then it, it brings down the costs of organizing those um, citizens' assemblies dramatically because the, the, the presidential dimension is really, really costly. Like I mean, really costly. It depends what you compare it with, but it's costly. So, for example, the, uh, the 21 regional assemblies... Um, uh, no, I think the, the entire cost of the, of the great national debate was, I think, around uh, 12 million euros, I think. Uh, mostly because some of these physical events, uh, you know, were very costly. But the, 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 the Citizens' Convention for Climate itself cost around 5.5 million euros. But if you do all of this online and you just simply pay people for that time, then you can save a lot on costs. And so you can generalize this practice a lot more. And as you generalize, you learn more, you improve the, the design. You, you So I think it will never fully replace presidential meetings because you need this moment of physical connection and, and face-to-face -face meetings to, to connect and, and create um, a group identity and all that. But I think maybe you just need one, two, or maybe three of those, and then you can move move online for the most part. So so if it's, a, if it's sort of a uh, on... on on the long term, you, you could sort of uh, generalize that a lot more at uh, lower costs. Um, and then uh, in terms of um, where we, where, where democracy will be in 20 years, oh, dear God, I, I, you know, it could, go, it could go either way. We could move away from, from democracy and, and turn to more authoritarian forms of uh, Ruled by experts and, and uh, you know, interrupted by outbursts of popular, populist, uh, populist anger. That's one path. Uh, or we could indeed move towards something a lot more deliberative and participatory and involving moments of, uh, uh, you know, autocratic or, or self-selected participation, as I theorize in my book. I'm, I'm calling for that. And what makes me a little bit hopeful is that I don't know, even five years ago when I started this project, I thought, well, this is going to be, you know, uh, utopian political theory for the most part because no one is ready to, to question the existing system, right? And, and then in just a few years, the, mm. it's become so utopian and everything we thought was impossible has become possible. We've been able to stop the economy for several months. The entire economy was frozen, and this is something mm. that we, we were told 
would never happen. So, so all of a sudden, the space for political imagination has grown enormously. And, uh, and even my open democracy model, which, you know, is an imagination, a vision of a democracy without any kind of elections, actually, doesn't sound as crazy as I thought, uh, you know, it, it could have seen a couple of years ago. If you want a, a sort of a utopian size science, almost a, a fictional vision of democracy, I have an article where I envision, um, you know, this Greek woman who's online on a on a platform called uh, Citizen Book, which is a democratic version of Facebook, mm-hmm. and she does a lot political activities online like that and she receives an email where she's told that she's been selected to join um, a very important legislative assembly in Europe called the House of the People and there are like 400 members and so she will ditch her job as a as a uh, sort of an Airbnb uh, you know manager to to join that, uh, that assembly for a few years and, and start fresh and make connections and have a, an entirely new education in some ways. And uh, so, so th- there's this idea that we could live in, in a democracy where um, politicians are, are, if not replaced, at least complemented by, by ordinary citizens uh, yeah. who join them for temporary periods of time to, to make the law. So I think that that's a key idea, right? That we would move towards a vision of democracy or, or reality where citizens are not just there to select lawmakers. They're there to make, make the law themselves or be part of a, of a group of, of people and institutions that make the law. That's, that's, that's the idea. Awesome. Um, just one last question. Um, I would like to, um, you to recommend some uh, book, movies, series, or whatever you think it's important for people to learn more about um, these topics, about the future of democracy, sortition, or whatever you think is important. Myself, I'm, I'm going to recommend, of course, your books. Um, I recommend Collective Intelligence, a Collective Wisdom, Principles and Mechanisms, Democratic Reason, um, Open Democracy, which is a, the new one. Um, and I didn't finish this one, but I'm, I'm working on that. So uh, these are my recommendations. So, ULN, uh, please give the audience a bit more readings uh, uh, to learn more about these topics. <coughs> So, uh, well, I guess I recommend this book by uh, David Van Raybroek, who, uh, you know, is uh, supposed to have influenced Macron quite a bit when it came to creating this convention on, for climate. So it's called Against Elections. It's a really good book um, explaining what's wrong with elections and why we'd be better off with, uh, uh, you know, randomly selected bodies as well. So we, we share a lot of views um, he was, There's also an excellent book. It's a collective uh, edited volume by... Uh, John Gastil and Eric, you know, the late Eric Olin Wright. It's called Legislature by Locke. Really good book where you, you, you know, they, they, these two authors make a specific proposal about a sort of bike, well, I guess, yeah, tricameral system at this point where you'd have a, a, a house of the people or some kind of like lotocratic body supplementing elected officials, mostly in a position to veto their proposals or to, to, to I don't exactly remember what they, what they propose, but, and then it's followed by um, a list of uh, contributions, a series of contributions that dissect the proposal, make alternative recommendations. So it gets really institutional and practical and detail oriented. Um, so I think that's really exciting. Um, 
so there, there are lots of there's also Alex Guerrero has a book that should come out soon uh, where he defends a autocratic vision of democracy uh, with a bunch of sort of uh, I think mostly decentralized autocratic bodies so I, I you know anyway there's a lot of imagination going on right now so and in terms of TV show I you know I was struck by a, a really good French TV show called uh, Baron Noir it means a uh, black baron And I don't know if it will ever come to Netflix or if it will be subtitled, but for those of you who can, um, you know, uh, listen to French shows, it's, it's really good. And the fourth season is, is all about, uh, a presidential candidate who runs on a lotocratic platform. He wants to get to power to, uh, create a lotocracy and then resign. And amazingly to me, since the show came out, like maybe I think it was last year or something like that, There are now people who, who push for this exact sort of, uh, uh, partisan pa pa uh, policy platform for the, for the, for 2022, which is our next uh, presidential election. So, so what I, what I find a little frustrating in, in this show is that the, 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 you know, the screenwriters felt the need to turn that guy into a, a proto-Nazi, like as if, you know, lotocracy was necessarily going to derive, you know, devolve into a, a, a populist authoritarian, authoritarian model. But at least they, they, they put out some ideas out there in, in the, in the mouth of that character that actually makes sense to me. So, so it's really fun. It's really fun to see, uh, uh, fiction, uh, and, and reality entwined like that. Um, yeah. Well, I will definitely see that one. Uh, I didn't know about it. Um, you know, I think that uh, this, some of these ideas are definitely going to be in the future of, of democracy. And, you know, it's always, as it was in the 18th century, it's the future of institutions and the future of republics and democracies is probably being uh, created at the moment by the French and Americans, you know, as it happened before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so thank you very much Helen uh, for, for having you I, I have lots more questions I will, we will do this again we will do another, another episode with you because we didn't speak much about open democracy actually but we will do, do it again thank you very much for, for being here um, do you have any, any final words for the audience Uh, no, best of luck for 2021. I mean, uh, congratulations to all who survived 2020. And uh, yes, uh, talk to you soon. Awesome. Thank you very much, Helen. And this was Helen Landemore at the Decentralized the, the Justice Broadcast um, and Federico Ast. And see you in the next episode. Mm -hmm.